Let's pray together, please. Lord God, we've sung some beautiful truths. And I don't know, Lord, that there's anything that I can say or even do at this point to express the significance of what we should have learned from our singing and what we should be grasping from your word. We sang that just one glimpse of you in glory will the toils of life repay. If our hearts would understand that, how much would we change? We sung that when you call us, it will be paradise, your face forever to behold. And if our hearts would believe that, how much it would change our lives. God, settle our hearts and focus our minds and change our worlds by your word. Lord, I lack the power to do that. Only you, by your spirit, by your word, can do those things. So please, God, this morning, show us your glory and change our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We have for several weeks now been studying the letter of Paul to the church at Colossae. And today we cross over the halfway point. In the beginning of this letter, the apostle shared with the church his love for them, his prayers for them, and his deep desire to protect them. We saw that the people of Colossae needed to watch out so as not to be taken captive by worldly thinking that would lead them away from magnifying Christ. And today we move from those warnings that were present over the past few paragraphs and into some glorious and wonderful truths about who we are in Christ. But I want you to understand that the glorious truths that we're about to see, they come with a calling on our lives. So, like a coach who urges his team, play up to your potential. Be who you are. Or, for the less athletic, like Spider-Man's Uncle Ben, reminding him that with great power comes great responsibility. We are going to be challenged today in the Word of God to live out lives that match the great news that we'll be reminded of today. So if you're a note taker, there will be five points for you to take down this morning. Let's find our first one. Point number one, remember your status in Christ. Remember your status in Christ. Look at verse one of Colossians three. If then you have been raised with Christ. Sometimes when you see an if in the Bible, it means that you're not sure. Like we would say, if it doesn't rain, we'll have a picnic. But other times in the Bible, an if indicates something that the author knows already to be true. And here, as we open the passage for today, it's that second kind of if that we see. Paul has spent two chapters saying that he is very confident that the Colossians have indeed been raised with Christ. Paul's confident in their salvation. And he's going to make 
his confidence in their salvation the motivating factor for what he's going to tell them to do next. But as we are here this morning, let's be careful not to assume too much on ourselves. Let's examine ourselves instead. If we are the genuine children of God, then the hope and the call of what follows applies to us. But we need to be sure this morning of our salvation. So how can we know this morning if we are God's children? I'll put the answer this way, though it could be said many ways. Is all of your trust for all of your soul in Christ alone? John 1, 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Bible's answer for how do you know if you are a child of God comes down to a question of life-changing faith. Do you believe in Jesus? And has that belief in Jesus really changed your life? If so, then you're saved. So that raises another question. What is it that I have to believe in order to know for sure that I believed in Jesus to be saved? And you need to believe what God's word has told us about him. Jesus Christ is God's own son. Truly God in the flesh. He came to earth. And Jesus, when he came to earth, lived out perfection in his life as fully God and fully man. He never failed. He always did that which was perfect and right. And Jesus died on a harsh Roman cross at the hands of evil men. And in his death, Jesus offered himself to God as a sacrifice for the sins of the children of God. As Jesus was dying on the cross, God the Father was punishing Jesus for the sins of others, sins Jesus did not commit, sins of people like you and like me. And when Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, he declared at that moment that his work was done. And then he died. Jesus did not merely die as a sacrifice. Had Jesus died and remained in the grave, there would be no hope for us. The truth is that on the third day from the day of his death, Jesus came back to life. He, he returned from the grave and he walked again on the earth. And it was after Jesus rose from the grave that he helped his followers understand that all of the Bible had pointed to his very life and death and resurrection. And it's through Jesus and Jesus alone that God's mission would be accomplished. In several places in the Bible, including Colossians chapter 2, the Bible says that those who trust in Jesus share both in his death and in his resurrection. If you've seen yourself as, as a sinner who has no hope to get away from the penalty that you deserve, if you have seen Jesus as a Savior who died to pay your debt, 
If you have entrusted your soul to Jesus, if your life has changed because of that trust, you're saved. You're a child of God. God counts it as if you died on the cross, united with Jesus, and received the punishment in that moment that you deserve for your sin. God counts it as if you lived out the perfection of Jesus in your own life. God counts it as if you rose from the grave when Jesus rose from the grave. If you have put your trust in Jesus, God counts you as united with Jesus to share in the reward that God has for Jesus of forever joy. So the first thing for us is to ask this question today. Am I saved? Don't assume it, by the way. Truly ask it today. Is your full trust for your entire soul in Christ and in Christ alone? Is your trust not in church membership? Not in your refusal to do things that you think are bad? Not in how good you behave. Not in your family history. But totally in Jesus and Jesus alone. If you're not sure, I would urge you to let go of anything that relates to self. Let go of everything and call out to Jesus for salvation. Jesus, please forgive me just because of you. He'll save your soul if you'll trust in him. Most of us here today are people who have already put their trust in Jesus to be saved. And for us, the call is to remember our status in Christ. Know who it is God says you are. God says that you're a new creation. God says he made you alive in Christ. God says he's made you part of his family. God says you have a new life in you, a new life He gave you because of the finished work and the resurrection of His Son. Know who you are so that you can live what God is about to call you to live. Second point. Make the eternal the desire of your heart. Make the eternal the desire of your heart. Look again at verse 1 of Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Have you been raised with Christ? God says to you, if that's true, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus, 40 days after he came back from the dead, left this earth. He did not die again. No, instead, he was caught up to heaven and he sat down in heaven on the throne of God. And Jesus reigns on the throne of the universe as King of kings and Lord of lords. And you and I are supposed to set our our hearts and our hope on the things that are above. We are to seek the things that are where Christ is. We are not to allow ourselves to be led astray by the things that are down here on earth. We are to be eternally minded heaven seekers. In Matthew 6, 19 through 21, the Bible says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In verse 33, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Or Psalm 37, 4 simply says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Or Psalm 16, 11, which says, You make known to me the paths of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God has always commanded us to seek Him and His treasure. In fact, if we'll recognize it, God actually commands us to seek Him as our treasure. Delight not in the things that God can give you. Delight in the Lord, not in His extra benefits. And and if you seek God in His glory, God will do something wonderful. God will perfectly, completely, fully satisfy your soul. Sadly, sometimes we who have been changed by God and saved by God seek our happiness in things apart from Him. It's like we're saying to God, thanks for saving me and all, but I'll just make myself happy by becoming engrossed in the things of this life. You ever do that? You know what God says when people seek something other than Him for their satisfaction? Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13, God says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When you look to find happiness in anything outside of the person of God, it will fail you. Instead of the joy that you seek, it'll be like trying to get a drink out of a muddy, dirty, broken cistern that can't hold water. God says, come to me and I will satisfy your thirst. But if we place anything ahead of him for our joy, we rob ourselves of the joy of God and of the joy of the thing that we seek. We lose both. God says, delight in him and he will fulfill your desires. But if we delight in what is not God, that's idolatry. Now, None of this is to say that the earthly gifts that God gives us are bad things. Can you think of some of the gifts God's given you? Family, in some of our cases, is a great thing. Earning a living is fine, right? I mean, nothing wrong with having a job. Having stuff is no big deal. The question, however, must be, what is it that you seek? Is your heart set on this world? Is your heart set on your reputation? Is your heart 
set on the rules you think good people ought to live by? Is your heart set on your earthly comfort? If your heart is set on any of those things and not on the God who made you, you will always, always, always be disappointed. Christians, is your heart set on Jesus? Do you want Jesus more than you want your house? Do you want Jesus more than you want your food? Do you want Jesus more than you want your children? Do you want Jesus more than you want others to think that you're special, talented, attractive? Do you want Jesus more than you want to feel that you're better than somebody else? Do you want Jesus more than you want to get back at somebody who wronged you? Do you want Jesus more than you want to prove a point? Do you want Jesus more than you want to live? God wants you to want Him first and foremost. He told us in Matthew 6.33 that if we would seek Him and His kingdom first, He'd give us everything we would ever need. God calls us to love Him. He calls us not to rob ourselves of joy. He promises us that if we love Him, the God of eternity, He will fill our hearts with the joy that we so desperately want. He will fill our hearts with a joy that will last forever. Let's get practical. Right now in your heart, would you ask God this question? God, what do I currently value too much? What earthly thing do I want more than you? Christian, if you would glorify God, ask God to help you to want Him and His glory more than anything else. By the way, He made you for that glory. And so if you ask him for that glory, he'll actually give you the thing that makes you happiest, that gives you the greatest satisfaction. God promises us he is enough. He promises his glory will fill our heart with joy. God tells us in his hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you believe him? Let God show you where you desire this life too much. Let God help you to make the eternal your treasure. Okay, third point. Make the eternal the focus of your mind. Verse 2. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. If the previous point had to do with what we long for, with what our hearts desire, this point has more to do with how we think and where we focus. One of them is a heart thing, the other is a mental thing. Some of us have mental things. Now, as with many things in Scripture, there is a really clear point of contrast being drawn here, right? God often calls us things like, live in the light, not in the darkness. He saves us by grace, not by works. Here, we are called to think about the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. 
Now, part of thinking about things above is to let our minds dwell on and be filled with heavenly truths. We're not citizens of this world, not really. Our mindset is supposed to reflect a life that has become far more than the life we live in in present. So stop here and indulge my simplicity. God promised us eternal life. God saves us, forgives us, promises us a future with Jesus. God has promised us an eternal transformation in which we will live in a world where he reigns, where sin does not even exist. God has promised us a forever that is far more glorious, even far more real than the life that you live right now. Do you see how important that is? Thinking about things like that changes the way that you think, the way that you feel, the way that you endure, even the way that you plan. Imagine it this way. Imagine that you get to go on a vacation. So far, so good, right? For three nights in a row, for the next three nights, you're going to be staying in a hotel room. The room is nice kind of ordinary in its decoration. It's got those fake flowers on the table that hotel rooms have. And it's got one of those generically artistic prints hanging on the wall. Here's a question. You're, this is you. This is not some imaginary person. Would you then go out and buy a $1,500 painting to hang in the room so that it's nicer while you stay in the hotel room. Not so much, right? Of course, we wouldn't do that. Now, here's the question. Why? Because we're just passing through, right? That room is not your home. Why in the world would you waste your energy in decorating a room that you're not going to be in but for a couple of days? Do you see the point? This life is so short. It is tiny when compared to eternity. How long does a hundred years seem compared to 10,000? Compared to one million? Compared to one billion? God tells us to set our minds, to fix our thoughts on things above. When you think about how, for example, you're going to react to what somebody said to you, think about it in the light of eternity. Is it going to matter 10,000 years from now? When you get upset that you can't have the exact thing you want for dinner, think in the light of eternity. What's going to matter in eternity? In eternity, you're going to care about whether you pleased God, not about whether you got all the things you want on earth. So focus your thoughts, train your minds, think about forever with Christ, and do not allow your every waking thought to be bound up in the things of this life. Make the eternal, make Christ the focus of your mind. 
You know, there's one other way we need to, to set our minds on things above, make the eternal the focus of our mind. We need to learn to reason, not with earthly reasoning, but with the thoughts of God. Too much of our thoughts in this life is bound up in thinking and reasoning even like the world around us. We live with an earthbound rationality, but God has shown us something much, 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 much greater. God has given us his holy word. By the way, I have to say this week I've been really captured by this thought more than I expected to be by reading the, the, the weird space trilogy that C.S. Lewis wrote never done that before. But you know what? When you watch a guy get a glimpse of eternity, even in fiction, it's really fun. See, if you've all set your mind on things above, you have to constantly have your mind filled with Scripture. You can't think and reason any other way. 2 Peter 1, let's look at the last two verses. I'll read them to you. It says this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God, Christians, Christians, don't, don't miss this. God has given us His thoughts in the Bible. We don't need man-made rules in place of the Word of God. We don't need some supernatural, mystical experience with angels instead of the Word of God. We don't need some flash of charismatic revelation instead of the Word of God. If we're going to have our minds set on the things that are above, we need to have our minds planted firmly in Scripture and let God's perfect Word change everything about the way that we think. So Christians, make the eternal the focus of your mind. How? Change how you think as you remember that you're living for eternity and not for this world and let your mind be saturated with Scripture so that your reasoning is the reasoning of God, not the reasoning of this world. Fourth point. Find comfort in your status in Christ. The first point was remember your status in Christ. Now find comfort in your status in Christ. Look at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Why would you want to set your mind so fixedly on heaven? Why would you want your mind so fixedly to be set on Scripture? If we have died, and if we have risen with Christ, we are different than we were before, and there's no need to treasure the things of this life because we died to this life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, beautiful verse, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is, do you know what he is? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, right? Now again, let me try to illustrate. I want to be careful here because some of you could get too lost in the illustration, so... Here's what I want to say up front. People who die do not come back to this world like ghosties and things, okay? People in heaven are not looking down on earth and walking around among us and not helping us out with our day-to-day -day life. That's not the way it works. But 
I want you to imagine for some reason that you were allowed to walk this earth after you died. Let's imagine that God gives you one hour to return after death as an observer like in, a, like in It's a Wonderful Life. Right? Now imagine, imagine you already know what heaven is like. Imagine you know the perfect joy of being in the presence of God. Imagine you get one hour to observe earth. Would you fret over money? Would you bother with possessions? Would you let an insult get to you? Would you care whether people thought you dressed well in your former life? Of course not. All you would do is see this world as a pale, dim, weak shadow of what really counts. See, God's telling us in this passage to count ourselves as dead to this life and to its ways. We don't need what the world is offering us. We don't need to get back at those who have insulted us. We don't need to. It doesn't matter. We don't need to have the latest fashion. It doesn't matter. Whoops. I'll get that later. We don't need more money than others. We don't need to have our own way. We don't need to have anybody on earth think that we're wonderful. We just need what lasts forever. You know what we need? Christians. Instead of needing the stuff that this world has to offer, we need to please God. We need need to taste his glory in order to build up an appetite for forever. We need to tell our neighbors about Jesus so they don't die and go to hell. We need to invite people to worship with us so they can experience the joy of eternal life. We need to sing the praises of God because God is worthy of praise. We need to love each other because God has promised that fellow believers will show the world that God is great through our love. That's what we need. Keeping with the context of this book, The end of chapter 2 talked about how we don't give in to legalistic rules and regulations that have nothing to do with Jesus. We died to rules and regulations. Especially rules about clean food and clean drink and, and, and regulations about special holy days. We died to the Jewish laws and its demands. We died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And if our lives are surrounded by Jesus, our lives are counted already as perfect before God. God gives us Christ's perfection so that we don't try to obey man-made rules to impress God. We have everything we could ever need in the person of Jesus. One more thought for this section. How much do you believe God the Father 
loves Jesus the Son? Even the children here can answer that question. How much do you think God the Father loves Jesus the Son? God loves Jesus infinitely, right? Anybody want to doubt that? The Father loves the Son infinitely. Now listen. Listen. If you have put your trust in Jesus, if you have died and been raised up with Christ, if your life is hidden with Christ in God, how much must God the Father love you? If your life is hidden with Christ in God, if you're wrapped up in Jesus, right? then God loves you with the very same infinite love that he has for his son. Let that sink in, Christians. God loves all of his children, all who know Jesus, with the same perfect love that he has for his son. Because our lives are hidden in, wrapped up with the perfection of Jesus. This is cause for great joy and great celebration because God loves us perfectly. God has given us the righteousness of Christ. We do not need to earn our way to God and we don't need to treasure the little toys that this life has to offer. Instead, we are to consider ourselves dead to this life and its ways and alive to Jesus and his glorious grace. There is great comfort for us to find in our status in Christ. And in our last point, Hope in the return of Christ. Hope in the return of Christ. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's one more picture here God wants to paint for us in this passage. And it's a picture of joy and hope and encouragement. Jesus died for our sins. We know that. Jesus rose from the grave and is now seated in heaven on the throne of God. We know that. But do not forget this one enormous truth. Jesus is coming again. There is going to come a day when the Lord Jesus returns to earth physically, bodily from heaven. And it's going to be a glorious day of victory. God, in one magnificent moment, is going to wrap up human history. And Jesus is going to judge the enemies of God. And he's going to embrace those who have come to God through faith in his life and death and resurrection. And on that day, Jesus is going to bring all of God's children together, all who have trusted in him. And he is going to reward them eternally with magnificent gifts that we can't even imagine. If you live like verses 1 through 3 of Colossians 3 say that they take to live, can I tell you something, Christians? People who don't know Jesus are going to think you're nuts. They're not going to understand how it is you don't try to justify your existence through good deeds. They're not going to understand why it is you don't, you don't try to follow the American dream and buy everything that credit will let you get. 
They're not going to understand why you would give so much energy to worship God. They're going to think you're foolish and close-minded for telling people about Jesus. They're going to think you are insane for living by an ancient morality that the world now knows better than to reject, right? I didn't quite say that right. They're going to know, they're going to think you're nuts for obeying an ancient morality that they do reject. But if you believe that Colossians 3, 4 is true, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, when Jesus comes back, all that craziness of following Jesus is going to make perfect sense. Don't you think? A world that thought we were crazy is going to see that we're the people who actually believe the Creator. The world that thought we were crazy for valuing eternal over a temporary life will see that they were crazy for loving temporary life over the glories of eternity. Christians, consider eternity your true life. And hope. Hope in the return of Christ. So again, I call on anybody here who's not sure where they stand before God. Today, I would urge you to cry out to Jesus. He will rescue anybody who comes to him in faith and repentance. And I call on all the believers here this morning. Remember your status in Christ. Make the eternal the desire of your heart. Make the eternal the focus of your mind. Find comfort in your status in Christ. And hope in the return of Christ. Let's pray together. Would you bow with me? Lord God, you have shown us so much, so much that we need to grasp about who you are and about what you're doing. And our prayer, Lord, is that you would set our minds on eternity in very real ways. It's so easy for us to miss it. It's so easy for us to look at this world like it's what lasts. God, would you show us, please, that you are forever and that this life is small. Set our minds on you for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.